This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Health and Living with me, Lim Su. And it is Friday and that's another episode of our Doctor in the House series. So joining me is our regular co-host, consultant urologist, Dr. George Lee. How are you doing today, George? I'm looking forward to the show, I guess, you know, towards the end of the year now. You know, we are running out of major topics, but today's topic is quite interesting, right? It is. It is quite interesting. And I think it's a, it's a running theme of a lot of shows that we've done with you. We've done Indeed. a on the show, which is talking about um, affordability of healthcare services, of, of medicine. I think it's a nice way for us to end the year. Um, so, you know, we've made leaps and bounds in medical research, but not all diagnostic tools, not all therapeutics are accessible to mm-hmm. all, especially to those in low and middle income countries. And Malaysia is still considered an upper middle income country. So in that group, um, so the International Affordable Diagnostics and Therapeutics Alliance aims to close that gap a bit um, to look at healthcare access in ASEAN countries, including here in Malaysia, by working with local organisations and researchers. So we want to find out more about that. And so joining um, George and I today are Professor Dr. Sanjeev Krishna and Dr. Yolanda Augustine, both part of the Centre for Affordable Diagnostics and Therapeutics. Um, Dr. Sanjeev is also a Professor of Molecular Parasitology and Medicine at St. George's. And Dr. Yolanda is also a Clinical Oncologist at St. George's as well. Thank you both so much for joining us today. What a great pleasure it is to be here. And thank you both for being so interested in what has interested us over the last few years. It's very, very kind of you to invite us onto the show. Yes, thank you so much. And I think uh, this is a very exciting time now as well, actually, as we continue to um, create traction through the alliance that Mm. we just launched last week Mm. uh, in collaboration with uh, Maranti and the Ministry of Science and Technology. Mm. So very excited to talk more about that today. Mm. Um, Maybe you can kickstart by telling us a bit about the alliance first then, um, Dr. Yolanda, and and how is it also then linked to the Centre for Affordable Diagnostics and Therapeutics? Um, So the International Affordable Diagnostics and Therapeutics Alliance, uh, also known as IA Data, um, is a grouping uh, together of what we call the quadruple helix um, of academia. So those are universities uh, such as University Malaya uh, and University Malaysia Sarawak Unimas and other universities. Uh, government-linked agencies that are also working together in this space um, from the Ministry of Health and Ministry of Science and Technology. Um, civil society organisations, for example, uh, DNDI, Drugs for Neglected Disease Initiative, who also are working very closely with us on uh, taking this initiative forward and also responsible industry. So we have been building partnerships uh, with companies such as Duo Pharma, for example, um, in the affordable uh, therapeutic space. Um, the Centre for Affordable Diagnostics and Therapeutics is a social enterprise, so it's not for shareholder profit. Mm-hmm. And uh, Professor Krishna and myself set that up a couple of years ago, really aimed at um, helping to basically match uh, different entities within the ecosystem to work um, on the on delivering um, the aspirations of the Alliance. And so we are a founding member of the Alliance uh, together with um, Maranti uh, from mm-hmm. the Ministry of Science and Technology, uh, as well as Ministry of Health and DND. Prof Krishna, I know the you know we've spoken about IA data. We've spoken about the center. A key word I notice in both of these organizations is affordable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, tell me more about that. You know what what does that mean to you in the context of delivering healthcare, delivering diagnostics and therapeutics? That's such a great question. You know, I my career has been focused on trying to improve the lot 
by treatments or diagnostics uh, of diseases that affect people who can't really afford any form of treatment, whether it's malaria, whether it's sleeping sickness, tuberculosis. So I spent my time kind of focused on really addressing some of the challenges, uh, making uh, new treatments or diagnostics that work and so on. But the whole idea came together uh, about five years ago when uh, uh, Dr. Yolanda uh, came and joined our group at St. George's and we had the idea that we wanted to really look and see if we could develop new ways to manage cancers. Now, you know, cancers are a diagnosis that touches everyone's lives. Mm. It doesn't have to be directly. It can be the family is affected or your friends. And for those who are in the unfortunate position that you can't afford a treatment, it is a catastrophe financially sometimes. People, it is not only the generation that is affected, but even the debts go to the next generation. And so it was this challenge that uh, we were trying to address when Dr. Yolanda joined our group. And the idea was to take a, a drug which is already being used and is widely available and very affordable. And we know that it's already safe because mm. it's being used, uh, for example, to treat malaria, which is mm -hmm. what I was working on, and to see... With, with good reason behind it. So we had some good evidence in the laboratory, but we really needed some clinical results to say it's worth using this drug you know, for this type of cancer. And it happened that we, I had done a small study uh, at St. George's uh, working on bowel cancer, which, you know, which is a big issue in Malaysia, uh, number two or number three in Malaysia out of the cancers. And what we wanted to do is to see if we could take this very affordable, safe treatment and see if it would work for cancers. And our early results, which are very preliminary, small study, they were very encouraging, which was the reason why we wanted to start this, this whole process. And then, you know what happened? Uh, the ideas grew, the, uh, mm. the, the ambitions grew. I'd been working also in Malaysia off and on for a, you know, for a few years working on things like monkey malaria. I'd mm. come to Sarawak, you know, love to come here. But I didn't uh, recognize at the time how much, uh, uh, you know, we would become involved in Malaysia. And so I was so happy that Dr. Yolanda uh, managed to drag me back here. It wasn't mm -hmm. much hard for her to do that. <laughs> and, and, and for me to then, you know, really, really become involved and, and to see if we could bring some of these solutions that we are talking about, and they're really at the edge of science as well, uh, bring some of these solutions here mm. so that we can uh, make everything grow in this ecosystem, Malaysia, and now, of course, for ASEAN. Mm. Dr. Yolanda, presumably as an oncologist yourself, I mean, you witnessed this probably across the board when mm. there are new development and new drugs that comes out. Affordability is probably uh, the issues that most people find challenging. I mean, I deal with prostate cancer all mm. the time. And then um, when you see, it's heartbreaking, just like what Professor Krishna is saying, that when you see patients just can't afford anything. Over here, it is uh, people almost give up hope. Is that the mm. reason why you get involved in this? Mm. And can you give us some example about how the centre is actually helping people 
in UK and perhaps in Malaysia? Mm. Um, so definitely, I think um, I got to a point in my career as well uh, where I was training in clinical oncology and um, I was in the UK. I was obviously developing skills in um, advanced systemic anti-cancer therapy, in advanced radiotherapy. Um, but I realised actually that a lot of the solutions I was learning about, they were not going to be affordable or applicable to half the world's cancer patients. Mm. So half the world's cancer patients actually live in low and middle income countries. And in these countries, cancer is actually a neglected disease. Um, and we know that um, at the present in the UK, one in two uh, persons may be affected by cancer in their lifetime. In Malaysia, it's one in four. And we expect that these numbers will just continue to rise. And we're also going to start to see lots of younger patients uh, being diagnosed with cancer in the prime of their working life or their uh, family life. Um, and in Malaysia, Asia, for example, um, immunotherapy, which is one of the newer generations of treatment, um, is very expensive as mm. it is globally. Um, so this treatment has actually really um, changed the way that we treat many types of cancers and with some remarkable results because it's basically training your own immune system to kill the cancer. And we see that it's a lot better tolerated than many of the other conventional chemotherapies uh, that we've been using for decades. However, it comes at a cost. Mm. So one cycle of pembrolizumab immunotherapy, for example, is about 17,000 ringgit mm -hmm. uh, once every three weeks. So this is something that is really difficult for uh, people to imagine being able to afford, mm -hmm. even if they're from a middle class background, uh, let alone alone, um, you know, um, a lower income group. Um, and uh, at St. George's, for example, there's another scientist that we work very closely with who also happens to be Malaysian. Uh, Dr. Audrey Tay, and she's got a very exciting program that we are bringing to Malaysia as part of this alliance. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially uh, focusing on how we can use plants. And in her instance, she's using the, t the tobacco plant mm. to basically become a factory for mm. producing cancer drugs more affordably. Um, and she's managed to express um, a couple of uh, cancer immunotherapy and targeted therapy drugs in this system. And the cost modeling that they've done um, indicates that we may be able to bring the cost down by about 90% for some of these treatments. So just imagine if we could actually bring the cost of treatment down from 17,000 ringgit once every three weeks to 1,700 ringgit, that would be a real game changer for patients, but also society. And that is the kind of uh, work and the sort of projects that we're trying to bring forward through the Alliance. And I think this is really exciting. Yeah. All right, we'll go for a very quick break now and continue this discussion. When we come back, I want to talk more about the health disparities that we see even within low and middle income countries, as we've seen a lot of that here in Malaysia as well. On the show with me today are Professor Dr. Sanjeev Krishna and Dr. Yolanda Augustine, both from St. George's University of London and also part of the Centre for Affordable Diagnostics and Therapeutics. And also, as always, my co-host, consultant urologist Dr. George Lee will be right back after a quick break so keep it here on Health and Living BFM 89.9 Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su, and you're listening to an episode of our Doctor in the House series. And joining us, as always, is consultant neurologist Dr. George Lee, the Doctor in the House. And um, joining us as our two special guests today, Professor Dr. Sanjeev Krishna, Professor of Molecular Parasitology and Medicine, and Dr. Yolanda Augustine, clinical oncologist. Both of them are from St. George's University of London and also part of the Centre for Affordable Diagnostics and Therapeutics. And that 
that's exactly what we're talking about, making um, diagnostics and therapeutics, especially in the context of cancer care, affordable to people. We're talking about the kind of work that the centre is doing through the um, International Affordable Diagnostics and Therapeutics Alliance here in Malaysia. Um, Dr Yolanda, before the break, we were talking about these issues of cost, issues of affordability that we're seeing. Um, I know you also, you know, work very closely with communities in Sarawak. And that's one state that often is brought up when we talk about disparities in healthcare access, right? Especially when we look at the more rural um, villages, rural communities in the state versus, say, Kuching or even an urban centre like Kuala Lumpur. What have you seen in terms of the disparities in healthcare access for these communities? No, thank you, Sue Ann. Um, so actually, Sarawak is very close to our hearts. And that's actually uh, one of the inspirations for us bringing this alliance to Malaysia as well. Um, I mean, we've all heard the stories of, um, you know, the uh, disparity in terms of healthcare access and the fact that there are patients that need to travel four to six hours sometimes mm. or longer to actually get to their closest healthcare facility. Um, and we know that, you know, 45% of Sarawakians uh, will be living in rural settings. So... Um, much of what we are working together on is really focused at that particular community as well, how we democratise access to healthcare, um, how we decentralise uh, testing, for example. Um, so one of the uh, tests that we're also focusing on as part of the alliance, uh, together with um, a company called Global Access Diagnostics, that's a social enterprise in the UK, is about creating tech transfer um, opportunities for a whole host of um, infections, including dengue um, and uh, hepatitis see, but also a cancer test because we want to develop cancer tests that will enable us in the future to do screening mm -hmm. um, at point of care. So we don't mm -hmm. need to actually bring patients to the hospital anymore. We can actually bring the tests to them you in the community. You go into the community. Yeah. And um, apart from that, we've also been working very closely with uh, Program Rose. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, earlier this year in uh, July, uh, we had a wonderful um, event called uh, Cepeda Amal Borneo. And 20 cyclists basically cycled all the way from Kuching to Bintulu, which was over 700 kilometres, um, in aid of cervical cancer elimination. And we also managed to do a thousand tests um, in the community um, as part of the screening. So wherever the cyclists were stopping at the longhouses or in mm -hmm. the villages, we basically uh, were also able to offer uh, the HPV DNA uh, self-sampling uh, test, which is a do-it-yourself kit. And that was just wonderful because we saw these community champion women that we were working with actually being so grateful. Uh, that they've actually able to now bring a test uh, to their communities to mm. really help their communities uh, access screening. And this is so important because we know that um, Sarawak is one of the states with the highest rate of cervical cancer. Um, and if we're really going to move towards uh, cervical cancer elimination in Malaysia, we need to be focusing on how we basically help people to access screening. Apart from that, I would also say that Sarawak's an inspiration because of its people. I think its uh, people are actually um, you know, the true jewel of the true asset uh, in Sarawak. And that includes um, people like Dr. PJ Voon, for example, who's a clinical oncologist working at Sarawak GH, mm -hmm. and also Dr. Melissa Lim at Unimas, who we work very closely with. And despite all the limitations or the difficulties they have with resources, they actually have a phase one mm -hmm. first in human clinical trial unit in Sarawak, mm -hmm. which is actually delivering international studies and cancer trials to the highest standards. And they're very much part of our collaboration and our alliance. And many of the uh, 
uh, drug development um, uh, work that we're, much of the drug development work we're doing will also be tested uh, together in collaboration with them in Sarawak. And I think, um, you know, that's just uh, the beauty of seeing a project like this happen in Malaysia because the ecosystem already has so many talented partners and so, so much capacity within it. And now it's about joining it up and bringing it all together. Prof Krishna, I want to step back and look at the bigger picture for a bit because we're talking about, you know, half the world not being able to access these sorts of um, new medical um, developments, especially in low and middle income countries. Why are we so often priced out of these newest diagnostics and therapeutics? You know, because aren't there avenues for LMICs to gain access to these essential medicines at an accessible price? Wow. Yeah, they are. But unfortunately... Often decisions are made <clears throat> for the benefit of shareholders. And Malaysia has been leading uh, in a very good way to demonstrate how to make, for example, an affordable treatment for hepatitis C. Mm -hmm. And that has had an impact globally. This was Sofosbuve, right? Uh, this was, yeah, Ravidizive Ravi oh, with Ravi Sofosbuve. Yeah. It's a combination, yeah. And what happened is... Uh, the the drug itself was being <coughs> excuse me priced at about eighty thousand dollars for a full treatment course of uh, twelve weeks, mm -hmm. and uh, of course this was completely a, a ridiculous price. <coughs> Ministry of Health, uh, with support from the government, Drugs for Neglected Diseases Initiative, who are partnering us in our alliance now, mm -hmm. um, and uh, <coughs> manufacturers in Egypt created a new drug treatment, studied it in Malaysia and in Thailand, registered it locally. Mm -hmm. So no interest really to say, okay, you know, we must go for the big glitzy, uh, you know, what they call the stringent authorities. We do, did it where it is needed. And now look at what the cost is. Mm. From 80,000 USD for a treatment course, it's down to less than 500 USD. It's suddenly, it is saving lives. And it's saving lives, not just in Malaysia, but that, you know, we can do it in Thailand and in other places. And that is such a good model for us to follow. Mm. There are many reasons why things are unaffordable, but there are also many solutions. Mm -hmm. So another solution would be to work with the best technologies. And we're lucky we're working with Mranti. Mm -hmm. as part of the MOSTI, as part of Ministry of Science, Technology and Innovation. And what we are wanting to do as part of the alliance is to find the best technological answers that are still affordable for addressing the challenges that we face. We heard about, um, you know, screening for HPV in Sarawak, for example. And, uh, you know, there must be uh, solutions technologically, which we are uh, working very closely with partners to deliver, which can uh, which can provide the best answers, so that there are examples in Malaysia for ASEAN, for partner countries uh, associated with the Islamic Development Bank, for example, mm -hmm. um, uh, areas where uh, uh, normally these diagnostics, these solutions would not reach. Yeah. Prof. Krishna, obviously, um, you know, I'm grateful that you highlighted this, you know, Malaysia championing this um, good against evil kind of like uh, strategies in this model. Why are not we applying this in other drugs, in cancer drugs, for example? I mean, is this a one-off uh, triumph that we see? Because mm -hmm. that happened years ago and we haven't seen so many yeah. of the same 
medicine can be used, uh, you know, to make it affordable for everyone else, uh, for cancer drugs, for example? I mean, the, the thing is this. What our vision in, in IA data, and it's with all the partners that, that we have named, you know, the, it is a highly collaborative, highly cooperative venture. Our vision is not a single solution for a single problem. Mm-hmm. It's a platform. Mm. It's a platform for making diagnostics. It's a platform for assessing new treatments. We know that if you take drugs, you try them in different contexts, they work extremely well. I can only mention aspirin, mm-hmm. you know, which was started off as a pain reliever, anti-fever, and, you know, it's just anti-cancer. It's used in, uh, you know, myocardial infarction prevention and so on. So, uh, you know, the, the, this concept is not new. No. What is what I think we could really become ambitious with mm-hmm. is to make platforms so we can take ideas. Not all of them are going to work, but we want to test to find out which ones work quickly so that we can implement quickly if they work and drop them if they don't. Mm-hmm. And this platform, we, we would love to be in an environment which is supportive and permissive. And, you know, I'm just so glad that uh, Dr. Yolanda came into my office one day and said, you know, how about Malaysia? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because it's been inspirational to be able to come here and to interact with so many people who are full of such good ideas, who are so supportive of these goals Mm -hmm. and who are happy and open to welcome and to work internationally. Mm. Dr. Yolanda, there will always be naysayers who will, you know, Malaysians included, who will be like, well, do we have what it takes to work on these sorts of technology, right? To work on this sort of research, because what we often hear is R&D when it comes to pharmaceuticals. Medical research happens in Western countries, in upper middle income countries, right? Does Do Malaysian organisations have what it takes? Yes. No, I think that's um, a question that we've heard before, but actually the answer is yes, mm. definitely. Um, and over the last um, eight years, I think there's been a huge um, uh, designing and also development of the local ecosystem in Malaysia that's actually very permissive and very supportive Mm -hmm. of some of the solutions that we've been discussing. Uh, So, for example, um, we have under Ministry of Health, the Clinical um, Research Malaysia, Mm -hmm. which are a fantastic organisation, actually, um, that have been bringing in lots of big industry-led trials, pharma trials. And over the last um, uh, eight to ten years, they generated something like one billion ringgit in terms of... Um, FDI into Malaysia, foreign direct investment into Malaysia through these studies. Um, And through that, they've also trained many nurses, doctors throughout their network. So for example, you can now deliver these trials to to an excellent international standard Mm -hmm. um, in places like Sarawak, for example, in Sabah, um, you know, throughout West Malaysia. But actually, we now want to take it one step forward so that we're not just running trials that are basically designed by big pharma or industry, but we're also running trials that are designed by our local investigators, meaning our local academics our local doctors that are working on developing solutions that are basically affordable, accessible. Um, And then I've also mentioned we have the phase one unit in Sarawak, for example, which is a huge um, uh, resource and really a flagship facility, uh, not just for Malaysia, but also for ASEAN Mm -hmm. uh, and for the Asia Pacific. Um, And during our travels with Prof Krishna and myself, we met so many fantastic academics um, in the different universities throughout Malaysia who are actually doing really good work um, and, uh, you know, developing... 
their own diagnostic solutions. They have ideas for drug repurposing, for making drugs more affordable. But what they've lacked so far is actually the investment from the government to also help to take um, their ideas or their projects from the preclinical setting to the clinical translational setting and finally registration. But I think now we've seen, uh, particularly with a, a recent budget in October this year, a renewed commitment from the Ministry of Science and Technology to really invest uh, in R&D to invest in science, technology and innovation. And um, I think this is just a great time for Malaysia to harness that and to basically take uh, these projects forward together. Mm -hmm. Dr Yolanda, I'm elated, obviously, you think so highly of Malaysia infrastructure. <laughs> I'm also in total agreement with you, but I'm sure you know that in international stage and also the stringent of, in air quotes, international scientific community, they might not share the same opinion. So I we come across many researchers who are uh, showcasing um, Malaysian population oriented to cancer, for example, Cancer Research Malaysia. Um, when I spoke to researchers, even though the work level that they're doing, the researchers' quality is absolutely t uh, top notch, mm -hmm. when they submit all their papers for um, you know, high impact journal publication, they're all being dismissed in a view of it's not getting that international uh, limelight. So whenever you don't get that sort of international limelight, you don't get that sort of recognition globally. So what's your opinion about when people actually put it down simply because we're not in a robust enough position to muscle our way in for the international limelight? I hear where you're coming from, but I think it's actually really important as well that we actually decolonize our thinking. Great uh, way to talk about it. I think yeah. that is a really good way yeah. to describe that. Yeah. And also, uh, we must uh, put an end to um, you know the uh, paradigm so far, which is basically where we have um, uh, Global North institutions uh, coming to the Global South and trying to tell um, you know us in Asia, in uh, Africa, etc., how to do things. Because essentially, um, uh, there has to be that co-design, that collaborative spirit, and that respect. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that has to actually run through all uh, lines of society, including science. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second thing is, uh, we will never um, uh, basically stint or, uh, you know, go for second class science. Because the most important, uh, in th uh, important thing to us within the uh, alliance is also scientific integrity. So the ideas that we take forward, the projects that we're developing, they have to be backed uh, by the best possible science, mm -hmm. uh, the most up-to-date knowledge. And we also assemble the experts who are truly leader, leaders in their respective fields mm -hmm. to work with us on these solutions. And I think it's also very important to look at pathways to impact because as an academic um, or working in the research setting, um, you know, often you can take things so far, but you always do need industrial partners to actually take it forward to regulatory approval uh, for a drug, for example, and to manufacturing. So again, that's where Malaysia actually has some real jewels in the system. And we've been working closely with Duo Pharma, which is also a generic drugs manufacturer Mm -hmm. based in Malaysia um, and they've just recently come up with um, you know the first halal manufactured um, GMP international product for breast cancer for example mm -hmm. so there are already these stories of true um, uh, areas of excellence um, that you know Malaysian companies Malaysian academics uh, Malaysian um, uh, ecosystem players are already excelling in mm -hmm. and um, you know we need to basically celebrate that but we also need to uh, utilize those strengths and those talents to take this alliance forward. 
Mm, well mm. said. Prof Krishna, why use this model of multi-stakeholder collaboration? Um, from a layperson's perspective, right? Both you and Dr Yolanda have sort of listed some organisations, um, um, industry that you're working with. Will too many cooks spoil the broth? Ah, what a great question. Look, you know, there's a saying, isn't there? If you want to go fast, go alone. <laughs> if you want to go far, go together. Mm. And, you know, whatever we do, we must be doing it collaboratively. We are, we are not coming here saying here are the answers for your problems. Mm-hmm. This would be uh, exactly the colonial approach, uh, you know, which went out of uh, fashion decades ago. You know, we are here to listen, to learn, to work out together what is the best way to go forwards. And, um, you know, if there are many stakeholders involved and they, they all feel that the strategies that, that are being discussed are worthwhile, they're worth pursuing, they're worth putting time, effort, money into, then we get confidence that, uh, you know, whether we are here or not, the, these ideas will take hold, these ideas will spread, and these ideas have a value mm-hmm. which can be appreciated by many. Uh, and that's really what we are after, is to have impacts. And and not only, of course, Malaysia is a leader in so many ways, and not only within Malaysia, but within the partnerships that I've mentioned, whether it's ASEAN or ISDB-linked countries. Mm. And we don't pay too much attention, you know, to people uh, who uh, like to uh, set the standards in a way which keeps costs and uh, costs very high. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, w- w- we, we, we are looking for the answers. We are not looking to uh, hear about, uh, you know, m- making people uncomfortable in, in uh, high-earning countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Prof. I totally agree with you. The way to go far is to go together. And in all these stakeholders, I think at least uh, the role each other play is to make sure that everyone uphold that standards that Dr. Yolanda is talking about. But the skeptics in me is talking about the the biggest loser out of this whole game is the big farmer, right? <laughs> so what they're going to do is they're going to do anything to make sure that you don't succeed, right? So they're going to put forward all these things to say that, you know, but ours is uh, of a higher standard, our has been tried and tested, and this is a standard we're adhered to. So how do you overcome such um, conspiracy theorists in me that whatever you do, it's going to face that obstacle of the big farmer? Transparency is a great weapon. Mm -hmm. But I was just discussing this morning and I was saying one thing. Nobody can take away, nobody can kill good ideas Mm -hmm. and nobody can kill the excellence which determines whether something should work Mm -hmm. and whether something is worth using as a treatment. Nobody can do this. Uh, People can try, but in the end, it will reflect back on them. Mm -hmm. And the, you know... Why Malaysia? Well, Malaysia has already done it yes. with the hepatitis C drug. Mm-hmm. Mm. Look, is it still here? Yes. 
So I think we should be courageous. Mm. And I think just to follow up on what Prof Krishna is saying, uh, this is also where we really need uh, collaboration with governments. Mm -hmm. Because essentially, uh, governments in the global south, they are also responsible for Mm -hmm. providing affordable healthcare Mm -hmm. and uh, high quality healthcare Mm -hmm. for their populations. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, if you see the hepatitis C antiviral drug development story, for example, um, of course, there was a lot of threats to, you know, basically take that project down. But in the end, it succeeded. Mm -hmm. um, And actually, Big Pharma did back off uh, because it was also supported by the Ministry of Health, uh, Drugs for Neglected Disease Initiative, other governments from Thailand, Egypt, etc. So this is where actually the alliance is um, not just about delivering the pathways to impact, but also building that global solidarity. Mm -hmm. We need uh, global solutions for the global south, for our local uh, patients in low and middle income countries who actually have no other options. Mm -hmm. And I think um, if we focus on that and we keep that at the centre of what we're trying to do, uh, we will succeed. Indeed. Mm -hmm. Concerted action will see results, won't it? Um, We'll go for another quick break and then when we come back, I want to find out more about what projects are in the pipeline for IA Data. On the show with me today are my co-host, consultant urologist Dr. George Lee, as well as our guests, Professor Dr. Sanjeev Krishna and Dr. Yolanda Augustine, both from St. George's University of London and the Centre for Affordable Diagnostics and Therapeutics. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after a very short break. Keep it here on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su An. It is an episode of our Doctor in the House series. And so joining me in the studio today as consultant urologist, Dr. George Lee, as my co-host. And we are speaking to Professor Dr. Sanjeev Krishna and Dr. Yolanda Augustine, both um, from St. George's University of London. And we are talking about the Centre for Affordable Diagnostics and Therapeutics. So actually more... more particularly, we're talking about the International Affordable Diagnostics and Therapeutics Alliance, or IA Data, and the kind of work that they are aiming to do um, here in Malaysia, here in the ASEAN region, in making therapeutics and making diagnostics affordable and accessible to all. Um, Dr. Yolanda, I know that you guys have recently signed an MOU with Mosti, um, which you've mentioned a bit earlier. Um, and I know you have some projects in the pipeline for 2024 as well. I guess what's exciting and, and like, what from a layperson's perspective, right? Um, Prof Krishna also spoke about transparency. You know, people want to know what are you planning to do in the near future? Yes. Uh, we signed a collaborative agreement uh, with Moranti, which is an accelerator agency under the Ministry of Science and Technology and Innovation. And for 2024, uh, we have um, a number of pilot projects uh, planned. Um, and from there, in 2025, uh, we will basically also be looking to scale up. Um, but in terms of the 2024 program, uh, we have a project for affordable diagnostics. Uh, so that's focusing on a tech transfer uh, and manufacturing project uh, together with with Global Access Diagnostics. Um, they're a social enterprise uh, based in the UK and uh, we got to work together with them at St. George's during the COVID-19 pandemic um, and were able to actually develop one of the uh, first few uh, COVID-19 tests uh, very successfully with them. Uh, but they have within their development pipeline a whole suite of tests for neglected diseases, um, including dengue, for example. Mm. Um, so that's one of the first uh, few uh, projects that we are working with 
them to tech transfer together with our partners at University Malaya um, through MyLisa. So at University Malaya, they actually have a low-volume manufacturing facility uh, that is able to actually work with us on uh, developing and finalizing um, the test. And then we will basically move through the uh, project um, to take it forward for regulatory approvals in Malaysia and also develop the use cases because it's one thing to actually have the test um, approved by the regulatory authorities, but we also need to know how best uh, to basically use this technology. And maybe Prof Krishna can just speak a little bit more about the technology in terms of the lateral flow tests for dengue and why that's so exciting, uh, particularly with our knowledge of COVID. Yeah, thank you. Um, COVID showed us how important it is and even how to do tests uh, quickly. Um, you know, next to a patient who may or may not have a problem. And to have a diagnosis is always the first step mm-hmm. uh, in, in dealing with a problem. And dengue is such a huge problem, not just in the whole of Southeast Asia and South Asia. You go to the Latin Americas, you go to Africa. It's an unknown how big the and problem is. And it's becoming is. a global problem because yes. of climate change as well. It is, even in France you can catch dengue because the mosquitoes are there. And, uh, you, you know, there it is It is not going to go away. Mm. Uh, and if anything, we look at the figures in the last few years, it is going up steadily, this problem. So we do need to confirm if somebody comes in with fevers, headaches, muscle aches and pains, you know, what's going on. And the test that you can, you can do, it's a very simple test. It's very much like a COVID test, actually. You take a sample, sample of blood this time, and you can see if there is a virus there or not, and it can be detected rather quickly. Mm. Uh, the test that we are looking at, it can be done in less than 15 minutes. Mm. And, uh, and it, should, it is intended and should be, of course, affordable so that the test can be used uh, and people are not inhibited um, or governments or suppliers or uh, uh, care pathways are not inhibited in using a test like this. And then finally, it's not enough sometimes to just say, okay, you have dengue. You also want to be able to say, how bad is this going to be? And we have an idea of how to assess the risk of dengue, how bad it could become. We have an idea of how to do that. So one of the cutting things, that cutting edge things we would like to do is to implement this technology so that we can assess the risk so that the healthcare management, the pathway management uh, becomes clear that this one is at risk, this person, this one not so severe. And then on the therapeutic side, uh, we actually have um, two exciting uh, projects for takeoff. Mm -hmm. Um, The first is around drug repurposing. Um, So uh, we are taking an anti-malarial that's already um, off patent, very affordable, uh, less than four ringgit per daily dose. Um, And we know that the side effect profile is also very safe. Mm -hmm. And we're looking to repurpose that for colorectal cancer and also for a precancerous condition called uh, cervical intraepithelial neoplasia 2 two or three, or CIN two or three. So that's the precancerous lesion that can then lead on to cervical cancer. Um, and we, we are basically going to be doing those studies together with University Malaya and also with our partners um, in uh, Ministry of Health uh, through CRM. Um, and then the second um, aspect to the affordable therapeutics is about developing um, the uh, cancer plant immunotherapy platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're also working together with University Malaya to uh, start to develop the pathway 
uh, to be able to take uh, plants such as the tobacco plant and turn them into manufacturing factories so they can start to produce cancer immunotherapy in order to bring the cost down. But obviously that's part of a longer term project. But these are the three areas that we will be focusing on for 2024. Dr. Yolanda, I'm quite curious. I'm obviously uh, the drug repurposing. I mean, these are fantastic idea. How did the idea come about? It's like you know, how would an uh, you know anti-malaria drug suddenly being associated with mm. anti-cancer? And is this another ivermectin kind of stories that we all came across? You know, during the COVID time, that yeah. it's also exciting that you know some veterinary medicine suddenly becomes all um, you know um, you know the life savior. Mm. Can I just say quickly? Yes. It's not the ivermectin story in COVID nineteen. It's the dexamethasone story. All oh, right, dexamethasone. So that is another repurposed drug. Right. But this really worked and saved lives. Right. Mm. So. It's not ivermectin, right. it's dexamethasone. Right, right. right. So, so clearly there are many ivermectins in the pipeline before the dexamethasone. Mm. So how do we tease out all the gems away from the rubbish? Yeah. No, I think that's a great question. Um, and essentially, uh, how did we actually come up with this project in the first place? Well, it's when an oncologist got quite depressed, uh, basically working in oncology and you know trying to figure out how she finds a way back to Malaysia. Because essentially, uh, I always wanted to you know be able to come come back to serve mm-hmm. in Malaysia and to do something, uh, you know, where, where my heart was calling me. But I realized that so much of what I had learned and developed in the UK would be very hard for me to basically implement directly straight away in places like Sarawak um, or, you know, in the rest of Southeast Asia. And so that's when I took some time out and um, applied to basically develop a research project together with Professor Sanjeev Krishna, who is an infectious disease specialist. And his expertise uh, for the last 40 years has been in malaria. And one of his favorite drugs of choice is actually artisanate and and anti-malarial. And about 10 years ago, he started investigating and uh, artisanates properties for cancer. Mm. Um, and it is a fascinating area because there are more than 1,000 uh, preclinical uh, studies or research papers out there uh, supporting the potential anti-cancer effects of artisanate mm-hmm. um, across various different types of tumours. But you're so right. We really need to understand um, how we basically deploy um, these drugs and in what treatment settings. Because as we know, uh, cancer is a very complicated uh, disease. Mm. And um, how how we treat uh, one particular cancer may also differ um, in terms of how we treat another and also by stage, um, you know, that, that is uh, where the complexity comes in. So we've taken a lot of time to really look at the preclinical data. We've also done a lot of work ourselves at St. George's uh, within our team, uh, looking at the effects of artisanate in various different models of cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've come up with a very exciting and robust uh, program, I think, which looks at artisanate as a pre-adjuvant um, treatment um, or a rather uh, sorry, an adju- a neoadjuvant treatment mm. where you give the treatment before surgery. So before you go in and actually operate on the patient, we're also looking at it as a treatment in the adjuvant setting, um, i.e. when you give it to patients after they've completed their primary oncological treatment in order mm. to prevent the cancer coming back. Because we know that in some cancers, there can be up to a 50% risk of the cancer coming back after surgery or after mm-hmm. uh, chemotherapy, for mm-hmm. example. And in the future, we're also looking at uh, combination therapy. So how we might be able to combine artisanate with other conventional therapies such as chemotherapy or immunotherapy to make that more effective. Mm. But it does require a multidisciplinary collaboration. It also requires um, the use of bioinformatics uh, alongside um, a strong laboratory uh, working on the preclinical side mm-hmm. of um, the drug discovery, which we have at St. George's with our other partners as well mm-hmm. um, uh, across different sectors. And finally, we need to then test it in trials. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the most important aspect, I think, of trials is also 
the clinical trial design, uh, making sure that we're taking into account um, all the parameters that are necessary to run the trial effectively and to also um, have um, you know uh, outcomes that are going to uh, be able to be answered mm-hmm. by the trial design. Mm-hmm. And, and George, <clears throat> it comes down to this really, you know, to, to be able to reassure you, for example, for your question, you know, how do we know we're not dealing with something which is of no real value. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to waste end. your resources to we don't. We, we have Our resources are very precious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that, you know, our trials are designed in the most excellent way, mm-hmm. that we can deliver the right answers mm-hmm. with a view that the answers are persuasive to our colleagues, mm-hmm. our scientific colleagues, mm-hmm. because that's the only way really, I think, to, to have an yeah. impact. Mm-hmm. Especially good stories like that, it definitely yeah. will have kind of like a, it will be the gems rather than yes. the rubbish, right? Okay. <laughs> However, obviously, we highlighted all these exciting projects and everything. Where does the money come from? Where's the funding? <laughs> and then also, if anybody is listening out there and would like to help us, we are very open to yeah. receive. And but also, it, and and also, um, what does Rose and George's play? Uh, you know, as far as all these projects concerned, that's a very good question. St George's is the base, mm-hmm. the academic base. I've been there for more than a quarter of a century, and St George's. You know, the first vaccines that were developed for smallpox, the discoverer of those vaccines was Edward Jenner. Mm. At St. George's. George's. So, uh, you know, that global health um, position of interest uh, and impact on neglected diseases, whether it's new TB treatments or, you know, malaria treatments and so on. We, you know, based at St. George's, we are trying to do our best to have an impact Mm -hmm. globally. Uh, And so the role is very much, uh, as Yolanda was also mentioning, you know, it's very much an academic one to do the science, Mm -hmm. to do the mechanisms, to understand how something is working, to do the analysis that is needed for a diagnostic test so that you are confident that when you actually scale up and you put it to registration, the quality is assessed. So that's I would that's how I would describe the quality the role of, as uh, uh, um, you know standards, standards. Uh, provided. That's right. That's right. And then funding, mm-hmm. funding uh, even for our first trial that we did in through St George's in in London on artesianate in colorectal cancer, the pilot study that was funded uh, through charitable funding. Mm-hmm. And even the, when we started off this trial, so it was funded through charitable funding. Mm-hmm. We are now very lucky. Uh, uh, the 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 government has has supported us in our implementation studies for this these Malaysian trials. Government. The Malaysian government mm-hmm. has supported us, but we are looking in our partnerships for uh, very strong support. The 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 stronger the support that comes, the quicker we can deliver on our objectives. Mm. Mm. And so really, that's the equation. Indeed. Mm. Mm. And I guess just to finish, um, uh, between now and March uh, 2024, uh, we're basically working on um, an ecosystem mapping exercise with Maranti. And then we'll have a more formal launch with Maranti at the Maranti Business Park, hopefully in March 2024. Um, and as mentioned by Prof Krishna, we are grateful for some seed funding that we've had um, uh, you know, through the <coughs> government to be able to do this. But of course, we're also all, always looking for match funding as well uh, to come from philanthropists. Uh, we will be also um, applying for uh, competitive grants. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, obviously in Malaysia, there are many, many um, uh, philanthropists, I think, who are also um, very generous in terms of supporting uh, this sort of project and program. And we obviously would very much welcome that uh, when we have our full launch in March next year. Mm. Mm-hmm. A lot of exciting things. I'm sure George and I will be look happy forward. to look forward to, you yeah. know, getting both of you back 
back on once we see some of these exciting, you know, dexamethasone-like results. <laughs> um, perhaps then to close off our conversation today, it was Universal Health Coverage um, Day just a few days ago on the 12th of December. And I guess bringing it back to the individual, right? I'm going to go around the table here. What's your takeaway message on why equitable, affordable access to medicines matter? Um, Prof Krishna? We started off in medicine to make a difference and we want to make a difference to people. Mm. But the largest impacts you can have is if you can supply whatever works, whether it's a diagnostic or a treatment, as widely as possible. Dr. Yolanda? I think we've realised uh, from the COVID-19 pandemic that actually we are living in a global community um, and uh, resource distribution, um, you know, for a very long time has been very concentrated in particular parts of the world. And we really have to look at ways uh, to um, democratise uh, access to healthcare because um, the health of one person living in a very remote setting in Ulubalaga, for example, mm -hmm. will have a knock-on effect, um, you know, on people living in urban populations or, you know, in high-income countries. Uh, because of this way that our country and our world is currently connected through the global connectivity aspect. And uh, yeah, I think this is um, something that we cannot get away from and something that we should actually um, openly be uh, bringing into all our discussions as academics, as clinicians, um, as doctors wanting to impact global health. Hmm. George, what are you taking away from? Oh, well, one word, decolonization. <laughs> I really think that is uh, the key <clears throat> message here because I, I congratulate both of you for this effort. And I think one of the most most important thing is obviously the colonizations of this whole idea. I think you pick Malaysia is a, the absolute right choice uh, because of infrastructure and also, like you said, all these talents. And then uh, you never know, the next uh, Jenna might be in Malaysia and the next St. George's might be Unimas in Sarawak. Mm. Mm. What and a great thought. Mm, very <laughs> exciting, you know, very exciting to think about. And so that was my co-host, consultant neurologist, Dr. George Lee, and our guest today, Professor Dr. Sanjeev Krishna and Dr. Yolanda Augustine. I'm Lim Suen, and this has been Health and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.